the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, fighting over the scraps of the Union. Paul Huddy on a pair of court cases in the 1920s that provide a case study on the legal and economic complexity involved in becoming an independent nation. Also, Mary McAuliffe joins me to talk about the challenges facing women who applied for military pensions in the Irish Free State. Plus, we'll visit Harvard University and hear about the history of the Woodbury Poetry Room, home of one of the world's most comprehensive collections of literary voice recordings. But we begin this evening with an extraordinary tale of coincidence and chance involving an important artefact from the Irish Civil War. Our reporter, Connor Sweetman, has the story. In 1922, at the start of the Civil War, the Irish Free State used 18-pounder field guns to shell the four courts. These guns were provided on loan by the British Army to the new Irish Free State. After the Civil War, the guns remained in the service of the Irish Army. But then, sometime in the 50s, they seemed to disappear, and their whereabouts was shrouded in mystery for decades. That is, until one of the guns was discovered in the most unlikely of places, under a mound of overgrown ivy outside a closed-down restaurant in Virginia in the United States. I'm Ken Smith Christmas. I'm a former museum curator in the Department of Defense Museums in the U.S. I spent nearly 30 years with the Marine Corps Museum and then with the National Museum of the U.S. Army, retired in 2010. Ken is passionate about Irish history. He knows more about it than most people I've met, and he has a detailed knowledge of the Easter Rising, the War of Independence, and the Civil War. One day, many years ago now, Ken was on a long drive, and he decided to pull over at the side of the road for a rest. And there was this old dinner theatre, which had been around since the 1960s, but you could tell it was kind of on its last legs, And when I pulled into it, I realized that I'd been reading this book and it told about a a skirmish happening on that site in 1861. I figured, well, I'll just wander around through the woods here and see if I can find this old house where they're banging away at one another. As Ken is walking around, he notices all sorts of strange antiques. There's an old fire engine overgrown with weeds. There's a searchlight from World War II. That's also overgrown with weeds. And there was this mound of ivy. And when I looked at it, I could see a cannon barrel poking out through the top. I went over, pulled some of the ivy away, and I could tell it was a British 18-pounder gun from World War I period. That piqued my interest. Well, let's, let's just see where it was made. So I pulled away the ivy at the breach, and to my surprise, I found the insignia of the... Uh, Irish Free State, a superimposed double F with a starburst around it. It turns out that one of the 18-pounder field guns that had shelled the four courts in 1922 was now in a private display in the United States, even though no one in Ireland knew where it was. And that kind of took me back. And I thought to myself, well, isn't this the strangest chance discovery of me who would recognize it just pulling off the road, and here it is buried under a patch of ivy. I went to the office, and I talked to the people who were in there, and I said, did you know you have a a fairly rare cannon that's out here 
under a big pile of ivy. Oh, yeah, we know about the cannon. And I said, well, I wonder if somebody in Ireland would be interested in this. And I said, oh, no, no, the owner would never part with it. Absolutely never part with it. So I basically, at that point, just put it in the back of my mind. The reason why Ken didn't make a big deal of this was because at the time he thought that one of the four cork guns was already on display in Ireland. Preceding all this, the reason I thought that somebody in Ireland may be interested is in 2006, the National Museum of the U.S. Army had sent me to England I had several tasks. Ken was sent to England to check on the restoration of a World War II landing craft. On one of the days that he was in checking on the restoration, he noticed that there was a British 18-pounder field gun that was also being restored. And I just made a chance to remark. I said, hey, nice 18-pounder gun. And the fellow said, yeah, that was Irish. It was two years before I found the Ivy Pesh gun. I said, really? Irish? And he said, yeah, it's going into the National Museum of Ireland because it fired on the four courts. I said, really? That's interesting. And it was just a couple of months after that trip to England that I went to Ottawa for a joint military museum conference. And while I was there, I just happened to be seated at a table next to Lar Joy. My name is Lar Joy. Lar is an archivist and curator. At the time he met Ken, he was the curator at the National Museum looking after military collections, specifically the Soldiers and Chiefs exhibition. Well, Ken, I mean, he has a huge interest in, in Irish history. So over the years, I would go over and I'd meet Ken and Ken would drive us around uh, Civil War battlefield sites. Uh, so Ken is always a great host uh, and always been a great friend since uh, we, we met in Canada. When Ken first finds the Ivy Patch gun, he does tell Lar, but he doesn't make a big deal of it. Uh, Ken had, uh, over the years, had told me that he thought he'd seen one of our guns. Uh, and eventually in 2008, he, uh, he, he had found what he thought was the gun. Uh, and then in, in 2013, when we met, he kind of realized that um, the gun he'd seen was probably one of the guns from, from the, the first batch of guns handed over by the British Army in 1922. Ken was on holidays in Ireland, and he had arranged to meet Lar in Dublin at the Soldiers and Chiefs exhibition at the National Museum at Collins Barracks. So this is May 2013, and I'm going through the Soldiers and Chiefs for the first time. And when I was going through, I noticed this 18-pounder gun, the same one I'd seen in England, how many, six years, seven years beforehand. And I just turned to Lar and I said, so that's the gun that fired on the four courts. And he said, no, that gun never fired on four courts. I said, well, the guy in England told me it did. He says, we well, must have gotten that wrong. And I said, well, Lar, if that gun didn't fire on the four courts, how about that cannon that I found under the Mound of Ivy? That one may have. And he said, well, when you get back to Virginia, check it out. After his holiday, Ken goes back to the US to see if the gun is still there. At this stage, it's been several years since he made the pit stop and discovered the gun. Ken goes back to the old restaurant, except now it's closed down. But the gun is still there and still buried under that mound of ivy. The owner of the gun and the restaurant is a man named Glenn Graves. So in 2016, after a bit of to and froing, I went out to meet the owner of the diner and uh, we asked him if we, if we could take the gun. Uh, and we were very, very lucky. He was a very kind and generous man. He's, uh, he gave the gun to us. 
Um, at that stage, um, they're winding up. They were, they, the, the place was being redeveloped. The land had been sold. So the diner, diner was no longer in operation. Guns in those days that belonged to the Defence Forces uh, were, were clearly marked with an FF. So once we saw that, we knew that this particular gun had at some stage been in the ownership of the Defence Forces, the Irish Army. It's a very, very exciting moment. And I think there's a, there's a photograph of us on display in the, in the exhibition with very big grins on our face. Uh, to finally, uh, after all these years of, of Ken, Ken and myself talking about it, to actually find and confirm that this gun is just as important as we thought it was. Um, so it's a lovely moment. And after that, it was all about getting it back to Ireland. All of a sudden, all the pieces came together. If Ken hadn't seen the first 18-pounder being restored, if he hadn't stopped in that old rundown restaurant, and critically, if he'd never met Lar Joy in Canada, this gun would still be sitting under a mound of ivy outside a closed-down restaurant in Virginia in the United States. So how did this gun actually get to Virginia in the first place? Well, after the Civil War, the Irish Army kept the gun in use, but in 1959 it was sold as part of a shipment of obsolete artillery and machine guns. The company who purchased the weapons was called Interarms. And at the time, Interarms specialised in acquiring surplus military arms from around the world for civilian sales in the United States. So when the shipment arrived in the US, it was brought to the company headquarters in Alexandria in Virginia. And so one day, the owner of a then recently opened restaurant visits Interarms and purchases an old Irish Free State 18-pounder field gun. He then sets the gun up outside his restaurant and that's where it sat, exposed to the elements for the next 40 years. The restoration of the gun was led by Sergeant Robbie Delaney at the Curra in Kildare. Which was you know, painstaking and it takes a, it's, a, it's a long process of kind of bringing something back to the way it did look like. And nowadays when we conserve an item, historical item, we, we're very cautious to ensure that it's done in a very planned, methodical way. Uh, it's not just about you know making it look like it looked new. You know, you you do need to kind of t- to treat it in a very academic way to bring it back to 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 that look. Robbie, now who did all this work bringing it back to the way it was, he did a huge amount of work on it and did eventually get the breach to open it. It actually had been sealed, so the breach is open. As for firing it, you know, people always ask me about old guns in in the museum. You can say yes, a gun can be fired, but do you really want to fire hundred year old uh, field artillery gun? or a rifle that's 100 years old. These things are they're antiques, so I wouldn't do that. But the gun, you can always bring a gun back to life if you want to go that whole way, but it, uh, I wouldn't be firing a full charge out of a historic 18-pounder. Once the restoration is complete, one more challenge remained. How do you actually get one of these guns inside a museum, or any building for that matter? That's where Brenda Malone comes in. Hi, I'm Brenda Malone and I'm the curator of Arms and Armour Military History, Flags, Banners, Transport and Contemporary History at the National Museum of Ireland. When it arrived on the back of a flatbed truck um, at four o'clock in the morning, and that was the first time I'd seen it in person. And I'd seen lots and lots of photographs of it. Um, I'd received the measurements of it. I'd been through the whole process of how are we going to get this gun into this space, into any space, in through any door, which was really one of the biggest challenges of of putting this together. But to see that gun arrive when the cover came off it, and I was so surprised by how small it was. 
Now, obviously, it's a, it's a large artillery piece, but I suppose the event of the explosion in the forecourts and everything around that is such a huge thing in Irish historical memory that you almost expect a gun that has participated in such an event to be enormous. And I think what, yeah, what struck me when the cover came off it, when they were about to strap it up to lift it over the back wall, and the guys were standing beside it, including Robbie, who had refurbished it and restored it. I think I was just struck by going, wow, that's much smaller than I expected. And I and I think that says a lot about how we how we remember things, how we visualize things in our memory when especially when something like the Civil War and the Four Courts, when you've been taught about that since you're a kid in history classes. It it's this huge, huge event. And when you see the gun, it's it's kind of like, wow, that was part of the huge explosion. Because even the unexpected um, size of it is actually part of the surprise of the object to me. They brought the ivy patch gun from the Curra on a flatbed truck to the back of Arbor Hill. Then a crane was used to lift the gun off the truck over the back wall and railing and then down into the dip that goes underneath Arbor Hill. Finally, they got the gun into a position where they were able to wheel it inside. And now, thanks to the efforts of dozens of people, the Ivy Patch gun has finally returned to Ireland and is now on display in the National Museum at Collins Barracks. Connor Sweetman was reporting there on the rediscovery and refurbishment of that field gun used to shell the forecourts in 1922. After the break, disentangling the Union. Paul Huddy joins me to talk about a pair of court cases in 1920s Ireland that illustrate just how difficult and drawn out a national divorce can be. Stay with us. A hundred years ago, the new Irish Free State was forging a path of independence from Britain. During the War of Independence itself, new institutions were set up to replace those of the Empire. Institutions like the Dáil Courts, for example. But nonetheless, the legal and economic complexity of dissolving a union, knotty questions of currency, borders and resources, were not entirely resolved by the Anglo-Irish Treaty. They're the sort of questions that we see playing out in a modern context as well, in the context, for example, of the Scottish independence referendum campaign of 2014, or, of course, in the years since the Brexit vote. Dr Paul Huddy is executive member of the Irish Association of Professional Historians and the coordinator of the Military Welfare History Network. He's been looking into two court battles that took place in the 1920s, fought by the Irish, British and Northern Ireland governments over the legacies of two Irish military charities. Paul, you're very welcome back to the History Show. Tell us first about these the two charities themselves. There's something called, and I must admit completely unfamiliar with them, the Seton Association Fund and the Royal Hibernian Military School. Yes, the Seton Association Fund was a benevolent fund. It was, it was set up by another charity called the Seton Needlework Association, which was actually a Crimean War charity, hence my interest in it, which was set up to give employment to Crimean War veterans in Dublin or the wives of Crimean War veterans and the widows in the garrison. Uh, And then over the 50 years after, or the 20 years after the war, they made enough money then to start this fund. So that was set up in 1872 and was to give extra money to Crimean War widows and British Army wives within the Dublin garrison. The second charity, as it were, the Royal Hibernian Military School was a set up in 1760 
1865, originally as a Protestant charity for, again, orphans and sons of Irish soldiers. And it was set up and it would train those boys. It was very much a military academy. Mm. The boys would be boy soldiers, for want of a better word, trained, wear, wear a uniform, and at the end would be expected to join the army. Now, it was... Set up as a charity over time, effectively became a state institution. The War Office came under its auspices in the 19th century and then got an endowment from Westminster. But it also got bequests, wills would be made out giving money to this particular organisation. So it ended up accruing a certain amount of money as well. I can imagine that they would not have been particularly fashionable in the Ireland of the 1920s anymore, that their time would have passed. The Irish Free State's position, therefore, on how the resources should be allocated, I'm assuming would have involved, we want the money, we don't want the institutions anymore. Is that, would I be correct? You're half right. So the institutions themselves effectively had ceased to exist. Both organisations were heavily embedded in the British Army. And with the absence of the British Army, they didn't exist anymore. So literally, the Royal Hibernian Military School packed up and jumped on a boat in 1922, the same, or at the end of 1921, the same as the British Army. Boys were gone, the staff was gone, the records were gone. What you had was a building in Phoenix Park, which later got you know taken over by the National Army and used as a garrison. The Seton Association Fund, its top trustees were actually the top military brass in the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, the general commanding the forces in Ireland, the adjutant general, the quartermaster general. These were the people who ran that charity. And of course, they all jumped on a boat in 1921 as well. So the people were gone, but the money remained. And now it's a case of who gets the money. So it goes to court. It goes to court. Who are the parties involved in the case? Well, we have five belligerent parties. We have the Irish government, as you mentioned, the Northern Irish Executive Government, the British government. There is then also another charity, the Royal Drummond Institute, which was effectively the sister school of the Royal Hibernian. It It was a school for British soldiers' daughters, Irish soldiers in the British Army. If they had orphan daughters or daughters while they were abroad, they could go to this school. And the other and most important belligerent, was the Charity Commissioners, what we now call today the Charities Regulator. They were set up in 1844 as a statutory body to ensure that bequests, trusts and charities were carried out as they were originally intended. They could hold money, effectively, and then give out the dividends. And that's their interest in this. Mm. We have two charities, effectively, that they want to see continue as they were originally intended. I don't imagine that when Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith and Lloyd George were sitting down to sign the treaty that they were thinking about any of these ramifications, but this is exactly what we're talking about, these ramifications that go on for years or, or decades even. So tell me about the uh, the conduct of the case and the outcome of the case. Well, it all started uh, literally a month after we see the dump arms from the irregular forces. June 23... A letter appears in Dublin in the Charity Commissioners from the British Army Council, which is the executive that runs the British Army effectively. And they say, we know you have this seat in association fund. It's £3,500. We want it. We want to give it to another charity, the Royal Patriotic Fund in London, to administer the British forces. Now, what we see here, it all comes down to one individual, and that's the Right Honourable Justice Charles Andrew O'Connor, Master of Rolls. He is on the board of the Charity Commissioners and he says, no way, that money is not leaving Ireland. And he convinces the board of such and thus they take it to court. So we have the Irish National Army is represented by the Attorney General. The Commissioners have their barrister in there. The War Office represents the British Army Council. The Northern Irish Executive is um, invited down by the Justice Pym 
the judge in charge. He says, well, they should be here as well. And then the Royal Drummond is, is mentioned within what is called the scheme of the Seaton Association. Effectively, it's the blueprint of how that charity should be managed. And they're all in the court and they're all making their claim. And they're the all represented by barristers, presumably. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, I can I can hear tick, 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 tick. The, the, you know, the bill is mounting for a fund that amounts to, what, about eleven or £12,000? £3,500 at the time. Just for that one. So this is the first court case. This right. starts, we have the first four court case. The, but the two of them together amount two of them to together, about 12 grand. About 11 grand, 12 yeah, grand. Yeah. Yeah. Plus 20 acres in Carlo. And Okay, well, that might be <laughs> slightly more valuable than, the, than the, the 11 or 12 grand. I mean, I suppose to some extent this is a case study in how states dealt with First World War veterans. It is in a way. When you look at the belligerence in the broader world situation, how are great war veterans dealt with? Well, you've option A, you take the British imperial approach. Britain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, you venerate the veteran. You give them supports from the state or charity and you make sure that their sacrifice is honoured. You go the option B, which is the opposite. Places like Czechoslovakia, Poland or Soviet Russia, where soldiers say, of the Habsburg Empire or Imperial Russia are seen as enemies of the state. They are viewed with suspicion and they get nothing from the state. Option C, however, is the Irish option, where you are accommodated as an equal citizen, the same as anyone who partook in the revolution or otherwise, but you don't get a special status. So you get nothing extra for what you did or your connection with the British army or the British state, but you won't be necessarily castigated for it by the state. What happens at a community level or in a familial level is a different situation. Is there a sense in which this is where the Irish state begins to learn how to deal with the ramifications of, uh, let's call it, Irexit? Uh, absolutely. You know, when you're, as you mentioned earlier on, when you're sitting around a negotiating table or you're sitting in the Shelburne Hotel you're drafting a constitution, big, picture. big pictures, you're talking about what are your national boundaries? Do you need an army? What's your currency going to be? You are not thinking about what is the implications of me severing from the union on a small charity sitting in, you know, the Bank of Ireland somewhere or run by certain people. But these are the small things. And this could be happening. I mean, these are just two case studies that I've come across. If one actually, if we take the legal historians, if they delve into the court case of the 1920s. This could have been happening every day of the week. Okay, spoiler alert, who won? (laughs) Who won? Well, the charity commissioners won in both instances. And that's what's interesting about this in terms of the foundation of the Irish state. The Irish government loses. The charity commissioners and the Irish judiciary rule in favour of the charities. So the Seaton Association Fund is reconstituted because the charity commissioners knew about it. They had the scheme for it. They were aware of the last honorary secretary of that particular organisation living in Dublin. And the judge felt that the original intention for providing funds to the wives and children of British servicemen, Irish-born, could still be continued. So they reconstituted... Let's face it, there were plenty of those. Plenty of them. So he asked each of the five belligerents to nominate two new trustees. And this is more interesting in itself. It's who forms the trust thereafter. So they're effectively what we might call the old stock... So we have Thomas Francis Maloney, Lord Chief Justice of Ireland, who was actually a trustee of the Royal Drummond Institute. General Sir Brian Mahan, who you know well Indeed. as the General of the 10th Irish Division. He was a trustee in another charity, the Land Trust, which built houses for ex-servicemen and in the Senate. Then Major General John Joseph Gerrard, Principal Medical Officer in Ireland, 1920 to 22, and so on. So these kinds of guys are of the old stock of sorts, if you will, pre-independence, but they are now 
finding their place in New Ireland in that respect. And then with regards to the Royal Hibernian School, that was a lot more complex. Seton Fund only, the court case only lasted a year, 23, 24. <laughs> only? Only. The Royal Hibernian went on from 24 into 29. So the reason was they hadn't a clue where the money was. So this is what happens when everyone packs up and leaves Dublin. Well, where was the, where was the money left? So they had to do a bit of digging. And eventually the War Office found a document which said that the eight grand was in stocks and shares held by the Bank of Ireland on College Green. So once they figured that out, well, now you know what you're fighting for. So they were able to contest. They stood up in front of the judge and they made their claims. Between 26 and 28 is kind of when the heart of the case has been fought out. But three key points came out and it was this the estate had to stay in Ireland and be used for Irish children the estate could not be divided across the border between the north and the south and it still had to be for Irish children related to the British Army and the charities commissioners were retaining the capital and would issue the dividends to whomever the court saw fit Okay, now you've been looking back at this as an historian but I presume at the back of your mind there's a warning here there's a warning here for Scottish, the Scottish independence movement, the, the uh, growing Welsh independence movement, uh, certainly in relation to Brexit, which is be careful what you wish for. It's all ahead of you. Absolutely. We were only in a union for 120 years and this is what people <laughs> had to deal with. The Scots are in a union for over 300 years. I mean, again, look at Brexit. They're only in the EU for 45 years and, it's, and they're dealing with all sorts of kerfuffles because the longer you're together with someone, I mean, you know, you take the basic example of a marriage. You know, you're dividing the house, you're dividing the car, you're dividing all the money that you had in the bank account. All these little intricacies, the, the who knew who and who set up what and companies and so on and so forth in schools, it all has to be broken up and who gets it in the end. I'd love if somebody was able to sit down and calculate the fees made by barristers particularly in relation to the second case, which went on for five, five or six years. Well, I'll tell you, it was the, at least the guts of £1,000 at the time because they used the Crimean War banquet fund, which was something that had been donated to that school after the Crimean War banquet in 1856, to pay off those fees. <laughs> OK, it's an interesting microcosm of the challenges involved in dissolving a union. We leave it in the past and we won't speculate about what might happen in future instances. My guest is Dr Paul Huddy. Well, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. After the break, we'll be staying with the legacy of the Irish Revolution as we look at the challenges facing women who applied for military pensions in the Irish Free State. Stay with us. The recent Independent Review Group report into the Irish Defence Forces gives stark detail of the misogyny and abuse women have endured in the Defence Forces. We're going to look now at the historical context of paternalism and hostility revealed in the military service pension files at the military archives. They give us a great insight into the role of women in the Irish Revolutionary Period, a role that was ignored for decades. The first Military Service Pension Act of 1920 effectively excluded women by not including common naman in the list of organisations covered by the Act. To talk about this, I'm joined by historian Dr Mary McAuliffe, Director of Gender Studies at University College Dublin. Welcome back to the show, Mary. Great to be here. Now, if you look at the case of someone that you've researched uh, thoroughly, you've written a biography of, Margaret Skinner. She did actually apply in the 1920s. She did, um, but she had actually fought the 1916 Rising as a member of the Irish Citizen Army, even though she was also a member of the Glasgow Common Amon. But when she came to Dublin, she joined 
Michael Mallon and Constance Markovich and marched to Stephen's Green with them as a member of the Irish Citizen Army. So under that, she was able to apply because the Irish Citizen Army was included. She wasn't given a pension. No. Was she not given a pension because she was a woman or was she not given a pension was because she was anti-treaty? Well, as they say, there's no easy answer to that in some <laughs> ways. Technically, when you read the pension file, it says she was not getting the pension because she was not a uh, soldier in the masculine sense. So that would say she was not given the pension because she was a woman. But it had been determined by the hires up, including W.T. Cosgrave, that no irregulars, those who were anti-treaty, that's the term they used, were going to get the pension, male or female. So she was, even in the pension file where the officials are making the determination, they call her a notorious irregular. And she was. She um, had become the quartermaster general of the anti-treaty IRA once Austin Stack was arrested and was then arrested herself and spent 11 months in jail. Uh, Went on hunger strike three times. So yes, she was a notorious irregular. Mm. And so even if... She had been Michael Skinner. She probably wouldn't have gotten the pension then, but definitely they used her gender to deny her the pension that they didn't want to give her because she was anti-treaty. But do you reckon she was testing the legislation? She was. There is a snippet from another woman's pension file that says, uh, who used Margaret as a referee in the 30s when women then could apply after the second tranche of uh, legislation came in that uh, Margaret had told her she had tested the legislation in 1924 to see would they give it to her. And others like her did not. I mean, uh, the Countess, for example, I suppose, could have applied for a pension. Uh, Winifred Carney could have applied for a pension. Oh, they could have all. um, Well, anyone who was in the Irish Citizen Army, any woman Mm, who was in the Irish Citizen Army, and that was quite a few of the senior leaders, Kathleen Lynn, Madeleine Mm. French-Mullen, as you say, Winifred Carney, uh, Markovich, they could have applied, but they didn't. Because, of course, they were all anti-treaty as well. Some didn't apply because they were uh, had rejected the legitimacy of the state anyway. Others didn't apply because they probably knew, as Skinner was, they would be turned down. Despite the fact that women were overlooked, it was a female-dependent revolution. It could not have happened without the women, the involvement of women. Absolutely not. And I think the masses of information we have gotten in the last decade or two, and indeed the research that was done in the last 40 years by historians on Kamenamon and on the women who participated in the revolutionary period, show that a guerrilla warfare in the way it was fought could not have been fought without the women. They were the propagandists and Patricia Hoey, who uh, also applied for the pension and turned da- was turned down under the 24 legislation, was a major propagandist. They ran the, the propaganda machine, basically, because mostly the men were on the run. Kathleen were, McKenna Napoli, for example, absolutely. was somebody else. Yeah. Uh, they were the intelligence gatherers. They were the dispatch carriers. They ran the safe houses, arms dumps. Some of them were very close to participation in ambushes. You know, they may not have been on the front line, but they were there behind the men, ready to bring more ammunition or take it away when the men uh, were finished and had to flee because, of course, they would be under pressure to get away from any ambushes. So without them, the guerrilla war in the way it was carried out could not have been carried out. I was always under the impression that no woman under the 1924 legislation actually got a pension. That's not true. Who was Bridget Lyons Thornton? 
Bridges Lyons Thornton was a doctor, uh, but she was a young woman in 1916 who participated in the Four Courts as a member of Common Amon. So you think, she? why did she get a pension under the legislation when Common Amon were not allowed apply? Well, she became the first medical officer of the National Army. So she actually was the first woman officer in the National Army in the Medical Corps. She's a very interesting woman. Um, she goes on to have a, a great career as, as a doctor. Uh, she's also a niece of uh, Joe and Frank McGuinness. So she had connections at, at the higher echelons of the state. And she was pro-treaty, obviously, because she joined the National Army. Sadly, she was also one of the women who was helping with the imprisoning and um, caring for the women when they were in Kilmainham jail. So women she had fought with and herself had been imprisoned with in Kilmainham in 1916 because she was one of the 77 women arrested. She is now basically their their warder or, or their the person who's keeping them in jail. And she was, you know, considered a traitor to the Common Amon cause. And, and that split between Common Amon is as, as awful as the split between the men in the IRA. But because she was an officer within the National Army, she was granted the pension, but also, I think, because of her connections. Now, in the 1930s, obviously, Fianna Fáil are elected to government in 1932, re-elected almost immediately then in 1933, And the new legislation, the new pensions legislation comes in in 1934. Common Amon are included. Was that a recognition by de Valera of Common Amon's overwhelming rejection of the treaty? Well, I think it was a matter of justice because, of course, they hadn't been included in 1924 and they had been uh, full participants in the War of Independence and indeed, as we know now, most of them were anti-treaty in the Civil War. So including them in the legislation was correcting something that was a matter of injustice. I am um, kind of loath to say that it was a matter of de Valera being a, a bit of a feminist to include the women. But uh, many of those women later became members of Fianna Fáil and were, uh, you know, his allies in the political scenarios of the 1930s. Um, Except some of them were not particularly happy with the 1930s. Well, no, they were not particularly happy with the Constitution. Yes, exactly. Uh, And they had those arguments. Um, Mm. And and they never really trusted him in that sense, but in the sense of Republican politics, yes. Um, You mentioned Patricia Hoey, a particularly Mm -hmm. sad case. Tell me a little bit more about her case. Well, she's a very interesting woman. Um, uh, There's actually a Kerry connection because, uh, you know, with these great women, there often is. Uh, (laughs) She is the great grandniece of the man who supposedly wrote The Rose of Tralee, William Mulchnock. Her mother was a Mulchnock. She was born in Dublin. Her father died young and they moved to England where she was educated and grew up. She's very much involved in militant suffrage activism. She's a journalist, so she's writing a lot about women's rights coming up, say, to the Third Home Rule Bill in 1912 and is one of the women who's campaigning to have suffrage included in that bill and uh, is very dejected when Redmond and the Irish Party uh, refuse that. And indeed, in 1917, writes that the women of Ireland will reject the Irish Parliamentary Party in the election in 18 when they will be able to vote. And she was right about that. She returns from England around 1915 and is out in 1916 as a member of Common Amman. She fights in the Rising, uh, isn't arrested, but is very much involved in Sinn Féin and then in the War of Independence subsequently. 
she, because of her journalistic skills, in common with many of these young women, she's used as a propagandist and works with Pierce Beasley, for example, Arthur Griffith, the Sinn Féin Office of Propaganda, basically, is pro-treaty and so then applies for her pension. Because she she doesn't apply as a member of Common Amman. She applies as a member of the National Army because she says she was in the military censor office as an official there or as an officer. And this is the, the difference between herself and Bridget Lyons Thornton. Lyons Thornton is actually a medical officer in the medical corps of the National Army. Patricia Hoey is in the military censor department, but is she an officer? And this is where the argument happens in the, the file where her military service isn't accepted as that of an, a soldier. And so she is denied the pension despite being pro-treaty. Sadly, she gets TB towards the end of the 20s and ni- dies in 1930, a relatively young woman. As we reach the end of the decade of centenaries, do you think there has been restitution to women at last? I think there has been a real move towards including women in our revolutionary story. I think you cannot now write that without them. That has been a process over many decades I mean, Margaret Ward's book, Unmanageable Revolutionaries, was in the early 1980s. And since then, there has been a move towards including women. And now we have so much material that gives us a real insight into how important they were, not just in running safe houses that we always knew that was the case, but their intelligence work, their propaganda work, which is vital to uh, promoting the Republican cause, not just in Ireland, but internationally. You see the Republican women going on tour in America in 1917 and 18, and then again later on. And that is uh, the vital contribution they made in that part. But also to the military aspect of the war, we're getting to see more and more they actually were soldiers. They called themselves in in the, the language of the song, the soldiers of coming on. And they definitely contribute to the military aspect of the war and denying them that pension and and saying that they were only due the grade E because they were not soldiers, they did not contribute to the military aspect, was uh, was part of the ideology of that time, that women couldn't possibly be soldiers. They were considered the girls who helped the men rather than actual active participants in a military revolution. So the tradition of misogyny is a long one. It is indeed. Mary no. McAuliffe, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Finally tonight, history gives us voices from the past. Recently, writer Jonathan C. Creasy spent time as a creative fellow in Harvard University, where he explored a vast collection of voice recordings. There, he discovered links to two Irish figures, one relatively unknown and one quite familiar. So I go back to a book called Death of a Naturalist and read a poem called Death of a Naturalist which was described by a reviewer in the Irish Times once as a long, disappointing poem about frogs. Uh, You know that voice, Seamus Heaney. I'm listening to it in the Woodbury Poetry Room, the so-called Library of Voices in Harvard University. The recording is from Heaney's first public reading in Harvard from 1975. All year the flax dam festered in the heart of the townland. Green and heavy-headed, flax had rotted there. As an art form, poetry is intimately connected to the human voice. As a matter of historical record, the Woodbury Poetry Room is one of the most comprehensive collections of literary voice recordings in the United States, perhaps in the world. Miss Walls would tell us how the daddy frog was called a bullfrog, 
and how he croaked and how the mammy frog laid hundreds of little eggs and this was frog spawn. As I listened to Heaney in the poetry room, I began to wonder, how did this astonishing collection of recordings come to be? It turns out another Irish figure had a lot to do with it. The Woodbury Poetry Room was founded in 1931, and it was the first instance of Harvard acknowledging the importance of, or even existence of, modern poetry. At the time, advances in recording technology meant that pioneering folklorists, historians, and broadcasters turned their sights and their microphones to remote parts of the world, to musicians, storytellers, and poets who had never before had their voices broadcast, archived, and heard. I first heard this from uh, Rick Von Schmidt. In the United States, the Woodbury Poetry Room would become a landmark audio collection. In 1933, the visionary Harvard professor of public speaking, Frederick C. Packard Jr., began what he called the Harvard Vocarium, a place where, as he said, voices can be kept and studied. In Harvard, I studied the voice of Seamus Heaney. I had been teaching a course in American literature as far as was, in my, was within my powers to do so. I'd been reading about the prairie and what it meant. I realized that uh, there was no prairie in Ireland. But we have bogs. In a sense, if you have direction without depth, we have depth without direction. <laughs> and, um... Following Packard, it was an Irish-American man who became, arguably, the most significant curator of the poetry room, right in the middle of the 20th century. John Lincoln Sweeney, known to everyone as Jack. Well, Jack Sweeney is in many ways a really important figure, but an unsung figure, I think, in the history of poetry, particularly post-war poetry, that period between the 1940s and the 1960s especially. That's Lucy Collins, Associate Professor of Modern Poetry in University College Dublin, where she and her colleagues have set up the Irish Poetry Reading Archive, a project inspired by Jack Sweeney and the Woodbury Poetry Room. Sweeney was uh, an Irish-American, but he had very strong Irish connections. His wife was Maura McNeil, and he spent a large proportion of the latter part of his life in Ireland. So he really exemplifies those connections between someone very embedded in Boston, in Harvard, in the poetry scene there, but also very connected to Ireland, both in his enthusiasms and his networks. Sweeney was the son of Irish immigrants. Born in 1906 and raised in Brooklyn, New York, Jack was the baby in the family, and he was afflicted with polio in his childhood, an illness that would mark the rest of his life. I spoke to Avine Sweeney, a novelist and Jack Sweeney's grandniece. They were raised by their father, Patrick Martin Sweeney, who came from Donegal in the 1880s. He built a fortune in the textile industry, which allowed his children to grow up in comfort, and they were educated in the country's finest universities. Jack's impressive elder brother, James Johnson Sweeney, would go on to become a major figure in the upper-class New York art world. Jack focused on literary pursuits. Eventually, he arrived in Harvard and took up a position as curator of the Woodbury Poetry Room. While I pursued my work at Harvard, I spoke to current Poetry Room curator Christina Davis. Like his brother, James Johnson Sweeney, who was a founding curator of MoMA and the second director of the Guggenheim, Jack really believed that modern poetry warranted the same care, curation, and cultural tension as modern art. And also, like MoMA, that the art form deserved a place that would embody and unleash its total value. And for him, modern poetry was a democratic force of meeting. 
It was Jack Sweeney's engaging personality that drew people to him. He was generally just loved by everybody who met him. He was that kind of person who just knew how to bring out the best in people. Jack established an enormous network of poets and correspondents, amassing a huge collection of letters from the world's most significant writers. As curator of the Woodbury Poetry Room, he was responsible for documenting the work of writers like Dylan Thomas, Wallace Stevens, John Berryman, Allen Ginsberg, and Sylvia Plath. Fortunately for Irish writers and scholars, Jack Sweeney's immense archive resides in the special collections in University College Dublin, just waiting to be discovered. I went to Ireland this summer to immerse in the Sweeney archives at University College Dublin. And I think part of what I have sought personally from Jack and his archive is really just to see how this entire undertaking is its own form of education. Among these correspondents was a young Seamus Heaney, long before he was famous in America and around the world. Current Poetry Room curator Christina Davis unearthed a letter from Jack to Heaney, in the UCD archive. Dear Jack, many thanks for your letter, which was the first indication I've had that Death of a Naturalist had been published over there. I am curious what reception the book will have in America. The technique is so traditional and the subject matter so remote, but the main thing is that it is available. I can't help but thinking of a remark by a friend when I told him that it was going to appear in the United States. Quote, publishing poetry in the USA, he said, must be like dropping a feather in the Grand Canyon and waiting for the echo. <laughs> Back in 1949, Jack had married Maura McNeil, the renowned Irish scholar and folklorist. When Jack retired from Harvard in the 1960s, he and Maura moved back to Ireland, building a house in County Clare. I genuinely believe that he helped Irish-American writers be reunited with their heritage, both by collecting and recording Irish poetry and paintings, especially by his friend Jack Yates, but also by inviting Irish-American poets to visit him in Ireland or just encouraging them to journey there in general. Sweeney also helped expand American poets' direct encounter with Ireland by inviting them there, including Cummings, who visited him often in County Clare, and Robert Frost. During Robert Frost's planned 1957 visit to England, which was described and I would say proscribed originally as an England exclusive visit, Sweeney intervened and orchestrated a significant addition to Robert Frost's journey by arranging a visit to Ireland and a reading, I believe, at UCD, where he met Patrick Kavanaugh and Austin Clark. Of the trip, Robert Frost later wrote to Jack. It is only poetic justice that my sympathies with Ireland should at last make me almost an Irishman. Jack Sweeney died in 1986 and Mora in 1987. Their legacy lives partly in the special collections in University College Dublin and across the ocean in Harvard's Library of Voices. Jonathan C. Creasy was reporting there on the history behind Harvard's Woodbury Poetry Room. Jonathan teaches creative writing in UCD, where researchers will find the Jack Sweeney papers in UCD Library's special collections. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Tommy O'Sullivan on sound and our researcher, Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.